I speak to you in the name of God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Somebody told me the other day that there's a Whitney Houston farewell concert coming up. My sister is going to her third Elton John farewell concert this month. The last one in Toronto was in October, and now there's a new last one in Toronto, uh, which is later on this month. How is the Whitney Houston one going to be pulled off? Well, apparently by hologram. So there will be a hologram figure of Whitney Houston singing the songs that will be played through some kind of sound system. That got me thinking about, I think maybe the only movie she was in, I can't remember, but do you remember The Bodyguard? That was a movie about two sisters, one extremely famous, famous singer played by Whitney Houston. The other was her sister, who more or less was one of her uh, employees and had to be at the same time personal assistant and disgruntled sister. And those who were trying to ruin the famous sister's life were actually being paid and guided by the other sister. So it all was resentment around the fame that one enjoyed and the disregard that the other had to endure. I wonder if any verses in our gospel reading this morning feel a bit that way. There's lots of wonderful teaching in our gospel reading today, all kinds of amazing things that we can learn, all kinds of things that we can read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest to our spiritual benefit. But tucked in the midst of that reading is one of the biggest celebrity verses in the scripture. God so loved the world that he gave his only son, so that everyone who believes in him may not perish, but have eternal life. John 3.16. You've probably seen t-shirts, signs held up at sports venues, even a cartoon sports venue one time on The Simpsons had somebody holding a little sign that said John 3.16. So in a way, all the other verses of this passage are sometimes eclipsed by that bright moment, which is a bright moment, don't get me wrong. It talks about a loving God, not a vengeful God, who loves the whole world, not just a particular group of people. It talks about God coming to rescue us and to call us even through our own graves into some kind of new and deeper and everlasting life. There's no surprise why it's a celebrity verse, as it were. Some people even call it the gospel in a nutshell. But I want to focus on a name that comes up in that reading, the name Nicodemus. We're told that Nicodemus is a leader of the Jews. If you do a little research, you'll see that he's considered a Pharisee and a member of the Sanhedrin. And that's sort of a legal role within the life of God's people at that time. We meet Nicodemus in the scriptures three times. This is the first time where he comes to Jesus under cover, as it were, under cover of darkness. Remember, there were no street lights coming on when it got dark. 
There were no lights outside of houses that would pop on if somebody moved in front of them. He couldn't turn on the flashlight on his iPhone as he walked along the dark street. It's dark. And he comes then, secretly as it were, emitting something that is really an astonishing thing to admit, coming from those whom we always see as the enemies of Jesus. Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God. That's the very thing that the Pharisees will try to refute, that Jesus is not of God. For no one can do these signs that you do apart from the presence of God. The Pharisees will claim that Jesus is working hand in hand with the devil, not with God in his miracles. So do you see what an astonishing thing it is for Nicodemus to come to Jesus seeking understanding? He is the one who's supposed to do the teaching and the judging, not the other way around. And yet he comes in the darkness of night, concealed by a black sky, to learn more. To learn more about who Jesus is, to learn more about who he himself is, and to learn more about the meaning of life under the understanding of a loving God. Well, the second time we meet Nicodemus, it's even a little more astonishing what he does. This time it's in his day job as a member of the Sanhedrin. And by now, Jesus is becoming a little bit of a household word. People are disturbed by some things he has to say. The religious establishment of how things need to be and always should be was disturbed by what he had to say. And yet other people found themselves, like Nicodemus himself, obviously, from the first visit, nevertheless drawn to this man and to what he had to say, the way he carried himself, the authority with which he spoke. And so they're trying to figure out a way to condemn Jesus. This is where it's all sort of beginning to come to a head, as it were. And Nicodemus pipes up and says, you know what, we need to be fair to him. People didn't like hearing that. We need to listen to what he has to say himself rather than just talking about what we think he's been saying. So, in other words, he defends Jesus, which is a brave, courageous thing to do in that context. He puts a lot at jeopardy in standing up for Jesus at that moment. The third time we meet Nicodemus is after Jesus is dead. And I always find this one a little bit of a tearjerker. This time Nicodemus assists with carrying away the body of Jesus. He assists with the anointing of the body of Jesus. He works with Joseph of Arimathea to provide a proper burial for the one who has just been declared a criminal. Now, do you see how brave that is? 
Do you see how there's been a gradual opening up as we move through these episodes of Nicodemus's heart and soul and life? There's been what we call a transformation that began in that first encounter with Jesus. A change of heart, a change of mind, a change of life. The very thing that this season of Lent and our journey every day, 365 days a year, the same thing we are all called to, to be transformed more and more into the likeness of Christ, more and more into the mission of Christ, more and more into the heart of God. In our own personal lives, in how we live out on these streets, in our homes and workplaces, and in our life together as a gathered community which bears the name of Jesus Christ. Transformation. Transformation. In my experience, and according to our tradition, that transformation always involves a kind of dying in order that we may become alive. We will talk about that when Louise celebrates the Eucharist in just a little while. Let me find the exact wording here in the Eucharistic prayer. Although I can't. Anyway, it's the part that says, do you remember it, Louise? That we have been turned from sin to righteousness, from death to life. This transformative work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, turning us away from one way of being, turning us off of a road that leads to one destination, and opening up to us a whole new way of being, a whole new way of thinking, a whole new way of acting. You know, we Christians have this bizarre relationship with death. We can't stop talking about it. And there's a good reason for that. Because it is through dying to certain ways of being, in other words, not letting them live in us anymore, that we are opened up to fullness of life and new ways of living. The Lenten season is part of that journey. The breaking of the bread that we began using last Sunday on the first Sunday of Lent was, let your church be the wheat which bears its fruit in dying, which bears its fruit in letting go and opening up and becoming something that reflects the glory of God. And then on Easter, when we celebrate and ring bells and sing the glory once again and say the A word that we're not allowed to say right now, the breaking of the bread will be, Lord, we died with you on the cross. Now we are raised to new life. I pray that our life together as a Christian community will be dying away from the things that hold us back, I pray that our life together as a Christian community 
will be one which lives into the will and love and mission and power and salvation and transformation of Jesus Christ, the one sent into the world so that we may let go of death and have eternal life. Amen.